Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I echo what Todd prayed moments ago. The request that you would teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Lord, help us to consider the power of your wrath. And Lord, help us to live according to the fear of you, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. As we approach Psalm 90 this morning, I, I would invite you to open your Bible to Psalm 90. And as we approach this text, I want to remind you of an episode that took place in the life of Moses. And the reason for this is because of the words in the superscription of Psalm 90, which say, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So this is a prayer, I take it, that Moses himself prayed. And because of the content of what Moses says here, and because of the placement of this psalm in the whole book of Psalms, I want to remind you of something that happened at Mount Sinai. You may remember that Moses had gone up on the mountain and spent 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain, communing with God, receiving from God the commandments. And then as he came down the mountain, he heard the sound of war in the camp. And it turned out that it wasn't war at all. It was idolatrous worship. The, the people of Israel had seen that Moses had had stayed long on the mountain, and they had said, we don't know what has become of this Moses. And so then they said to Aaron, Aaron, come make us gods who will go before us. And then they shaped this, these, this golden calf, and then they identified the calf as God himself. And the Bible says that they sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. So they, they engaged in idolatry, and then they probably engaged in sexual immorality, which always comes along with idolatry. And the Lord saw what had happened, and he said to Moses, stand aside, Moses. I, I want to read you exactly what the Lord said in Exodus 32, verse, verses 9 and following. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. In other words, God is prepared to wipe the nation out, to destroy them completely. And then he says, in order that I may make a great nation of you. That's a very significant phrase because that's what the Lord had promised to do for Abraham. The Lord says to Abraham, Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, and I will make of you a great nation. So don't miss what God is saying to Moses. Moses, I'm about to put an end to the covenant with Abraham because of the sin of this people. And I'll take the covenant with Abraham, and I'll transfer it to you, and I'll start over with you, and I'll accomplish my purpose that way. But then what happens is that Moses stands between God and the people and he pleads with God to consider the way that the peoples of the world will respond to this. Specifically, he says in verse 12 of Exodus 32, why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains 
and to consume them from the face of the earth. So what Moses is saying is, Lord, think about what the Egyptians will say if you do this. Consider your reputation among the nations. And then Moses says in Exodus 32, 12, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Turn and relent. And the reason this is significant is because we've just seen in Psalm 89 the way that it seems the Lord might be done with the covenant that he made with David. You remember when we were in Psalm 89 two weeks ago, the, the, the psalmist rehearsed the way that God has, had, had made these promises to David. He's going to save the world through the king from David's line. He's going to make an eternal kingdom and put one of David's descendants on the throne. But now, he says in Psalm 89, verse 38, you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. It looks like, as the Lord was ready to be done with the Mosaic covenant, he's ready to be done with the, the Davidic covenant. And then we have this prayer of Moses. And this is a, a prayer specifically of intercession in Psalm 90. In fact, the same words that we saw in Exodus 32, verse 12, appear here in Psalm 90, verse 13. They translate them slightly differently. But when Psalm 90, verse 13 is, is rendered, return, O Lord, that's the same word that was translated turn in Exodus 32, 12. And then when he says, how long, have pity on your servants, that's the same word rendered relent in, in Exodus 32, verse 12. Turn, relent. It's as though, I mean, I, you know, I'm not sure exactly what to make of this, but in the Pentateuch, Moses tells Israel what's going to happen. He tells Israel, you're going to enter into the land, you're going to break the covenant, and once you've broken the covenant, God is going to drive you into exile. And from exile, you're going to seek the Lord, and you'll find him when you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul, and then the Lord will remember the covenant. It's as though Moses anticipated this. It's as though Moses knew they're going to need this prayer one day. And he writes it out, and... and as David comes to understand what Moses has prophesied about the future of Israel's history, he understands exactly where this psalm needs to be placed. After the, what looks like the end of the covenant with David in Psalm 89, we have this prayer of intercession from Moses in Psalm 90. There's something really significant about, about what's happening there. Just in the sort of almost above the surface of the text, as we see the way that Moses is interceding for the people, because, because don't miss the fact that God is ready to destroy these people under his wrath. God is ready to end the covenant with the people because of his wrath. And there's a holy man standing between the wrath of God and the people named Moses. And in that, in that we see the one, the holy man, who stands between the wrath of God and the people to deliver them to make it so that their life will, will go on and be renewed. So Psalm 90 is strategically placed in, in the Psalter. You know, if you, if you pay attention to the superscriptions of the Psalms, you get a lot from David's life in the first two books, uh, the first 72 Psalms. And then Psalm 72 seems to transition us into the life of Solomon uh, because it's, it's addressed to Solomon. 
And then at the end of Psalm 72, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. That's what Psalm 72 verse 20 says. And then in Psalms 73 through 89, there, there are all these threats to the temple. The temple's been damaged in Psalm 74 and Psalm 79. And there's an anticipation of the renewal, but there's very little from David. In fact, there's only one psalm addressed uh, to David or of David in, in the, that set of psalms, 73 through 89. And then it looks like the end of, of the, the reign of the kings who descend from David in Psalm 89. And so Psalm 90 would bring us into the period of the exile after the destruction of Jerusalem, the, the, the destruction of the temple when the people had been carried off to Babylon. And here's Moses interceding for, for the people. And where he starts is significant for us. Because he starts with this truth in Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2, that for those who are in exile, God is their home. So Moses prays here in verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. I mean, I think you can think of Adam, driven from Eden, and he, he finds the Lord to be his dwelling place. You can think of Abraham, wandering around with no lasting city, dwelling in tents, and the Lord was his dwelling place. You can think of Joseph, displaced from his homeland, down to Egypt, and the Lord was his dwelling place. The people of Israel, wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, and the Lord was their dwelling place. So I know that there are some of you here who feel displaced. Maybe it's because you're far from home, studying in a, in a, in a new place. Maybe it's because there have been changes in your home. And people who used to make it feel like home are not there anymore, whether that means your kids have grown up and gone or, or maybe somebody's passed away. I hope your heart resonates with Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. This is where we find a home. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And then, and then Moses, he, he reiterates this idea, develops this idea by establishing that this was the truth even before the world was, in verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth. There's imagery here that, that sounds like childbirth. It's, it's as though the earth is giving birth to the mountains, travailing in labor with them. Before the mountains were br brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting, from eternity past, to everlasting, to eternity future, you are God. God is the one who is constant. And the never beginning and never ending reality of God stands in stark contrast with the brevity of human life. So Moses starts in verses 1 and 2 with the everlasting God, and now he moves in verses 3 through 6 to the brevity of man or the transience of man. And, and he begins in, in verse 3 with a reference to the way that in Genesis 2-7, God formed the man from dust. And, and then he warned the man in Genesis 2-17, in the day you eat of this forbidden tree, you will surely die. And then after the man ate of the tree, he said to the man in Genesis 3-19, you are dust, and to dust you will return. 
So Moses is meditating on these truths that he wrote in Genesis. Psalm 90 verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, O sons of Adam, literally. And then in verse 4, you may, you may recall that in Genesis 5, there's this list of, of names, this genealogy. And it tells us how long these guys lived. And, and a lot of those guys lived to be almost 1,000 years old. The, the oldest of them was Methuselah, who lived to be 969. And Moses says here in verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. What Moses is saying is that even those nearly 1,000-year lifespans, they all end in death. And once the years have rolled by, they are all like yesterday. Or they are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You can perhaps envision a man keeping watch in the middle of the night, and he's enduring what seems to be a slow ticking of the clock, and then it finally ends, and it's over, and he goes to bed, and it's gone, and he forgets it. All our lives are like that. They're like yesterday when they're past. When they end, they are over, completed, finished, never to return. M Moses ties these three verses together, or four verses together, uh, Psalm 90, verses 3 through 6, with a number of references to time. So notice there in verse 4, a thousand years are but as yesterday or as a watch in the night. And then in verse 5, he says, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and it is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. What he's done there is, is first he said that it's, it's God sweeping people away like floodwaters. People's lives end, and he'll develop this idea in the next section, people's lives end under the justice of God, which comes like a flood and sweeps us away. And once the dead are gone, they're, they're like a dream. People go to sleep, and maybe they dream, but in the morning, there's just the vaguest whisper of, of this on the edge, on the fringe of your consciousness that you remember. And so it is with the dead. Even the longest lives are like vaguely remembered dreams. And then he, he transitions when he says like in, in the middle of verse 5, like grass that is renewed in the morning, he starts comparing a man's life, a person's life, to a single day. And, and just the other day, my wife and I were talking about how you know, in the, in the early morning hours, you, you have your coffee and it's a new day and you feel like the day's going to last forever. You feel like you could do anything. You feel like you have time for anything you want to take on. Everything is bright and clear. Your, your mind is ready for action. At least, uh, if you're a morning person, this is the way you wake up. <laughs> and for me, after lunchtime, I start getting sleepy. I start feeling like... Uh, the, the, the end of the workday is looming. I am not going to have time for the things that I have to accomplish. And then by the end of the day, I, I'm, I'm ready to be done. I don't want to take on anything difficult. I, I'm, I'm ready for things to be over. It fades. The grass fades and withers. And our lives, 
are like that. A man's life is like the hours of one day. In the morning, the, the youth, the, the, the strength, you spring up like this fresh, freshly renewed grass. By the end of the day, we're withered and dry. So God is eternal, verses 1 and 2. Man's life passes so quickly, verses 3 through 6. And the reason, the reason man's life passes quickly is now meditated upon in verses 7 through 11. Verse 7, Moses says, For we are brought to an end by your anger. Moses is simply reflecting on Genesis 3. And, and he's really speaking the same way that Paul spoke in Romans 5.12. Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. Death results from God's just judgment against sin. And, and he, he continues there in verse 7, By your wrath we are dismayed. And, and then he's going to continue in, in verse 8 to explain that God's just punishment is against specifically our sin. Verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So don't miss the logical connection between verses 7 and 8. Your just wrath is against our sin, all of which you know. And for all of us, death stands if we compare our lives to a sentence, death is at the end of the string of words like a period at the end of the sentence. And for all of us, once the sentence is read and you reach that period, we see that sentence was finite. And all things finite appear brief when compared with the infinite life of the eternal one. God's wrath consumes all of us sinners. I would, I would encourage you to contemplate verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. We all have these. We all have things that maybe some people know this about us, but not everybody. And then there are probably sins that we know in our own hearts alone. And God knows them all. The light of God's face exposes all the things, even those that we think are hidden. Verse 9, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to end like a sigh. Uh, Moses is saying that the sun rises and sets on the days of our lives. And there is no one whose days don't turn to darkness. The years wash over all of us. Long days, fast years, and they're like a mumble or a sigh when we reach the end of them. We are left with only the faint shell, the hollow whisper of memory. Verse 10, Moses says, the, days of our, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. This means, this means that you can expect seven decades. After the flood, the lifespans began to shorten, according to the narrative in Genesis. 
Nobody's going to live a thousand years. You might live to be 90, but nobody's going to double 70. Nobody's going to reach 140. Recently, I read about the, the oldest person living, having died, and, and that person's, I think it was maybe 124, 126, something like that. I forget the specifics. Nobody's going to reach 130. Nobody's going to reach 140. Most of us aren't going to reach 100. So as I was contemplating this, the reason Moses is telling us this, he's driving at verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So just as an exercise here, I want to walk through the, the seven decades with you that, that maybe I can expect. All right. So I was born in 1974. My first decade stretched from 74 to 84. My second from 84 to 94. My third, 94 to 2004. My fourth, 2004 to 2015. I'm now in my fifth, which means maybe I got two, probably, possibly three left, maybe. That's it. There's more behind than there are in front. So if I live to be 70, the year will be 2044. 80, maybe 2054. That's it. At that point, it's over. This is why Moses is telling us this. It changes the way that we look at things. Verse 10, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. And then he goes on, and this is honest about life. This is the way that things are. This verse, these next words of verse 10 remind me of what Jacob said when he met, when he met Pharaoh. Do you remember he told Pharaoh, he, he tells Pharaoh his age, and then he says to Pharaoh, the years of my life have been few and evil. Look at what Moses says here in verse 10. Even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Our lives are full of difficulty and sin, labor and iniquity, toil and trouble, struggle and sorrow, we blink twice and it seems we've gone from youth to old age and then we die. They are soon gone and we fly away. All of this prompts Moses to ask the rhetorical questions in verses, verse 11. And we should, we should contemplate these questions. Who considers the power of your anger? or your wrath according to the fear of you. Think about what Moses is saying there. Has anyone fully reckoned with the strength of God's wrath? Have we dealt with the reality of the overflow of God's justice in a way that accords with the fear that is due Him? The mortality rate among humans is constant. And that mortality rate... 100% is testimony to the overpowering weight of God's just indignation. Everyone dies because of sin. There is no sinner who has ever escaped death. No rebel. No one has ever decided, I'm going to rebel against God and I'm going to keep myself alive and succeed it. None. Who considers the power of your anger? and your wrath according to the fear of you. At the end of the day, right? Human life is like a day. In the morning, in the evening. At the end of the day, 
when the allotted span of life, the 70 or if by strength 80 years have been completed, all die under the righteous righteous application of God's holy standard. Now this may seem heavy, but this is the world that we live in. This is the world in which we live. And all of this has been said to bring us to verse 12. So God is eternal, verses 1 and 2. Human life is brief, verses 3 through 6. Because of God's justice against sin, verses 7 through 11, so, or therefore, in verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Look at the connection between verses 11 and 12. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? That we may get a heart of wisdom. Fear goes with wisdom. And for Christians, our lives should be different because of this reality. Uh, This past week, uh, Chip told me about a... a, uh, podcast, This American Life, on NPR. And it was set at at a car dealership. And these poor guys, they live to hit their quota, to hit their goal of the number of cars that, that Chrysler has said they must sell if they are to get a bonus that's going to keep the car dealership in the black. So, I mean, these guys are personally buying cars. They're selling cars to their nieces and nephews in other states. They're selling cars for below the value. They're doing everything they can to hit the quota so that Chrysler will give this sum of money so that even if they've lost money on these particular deals, because of the bonus from Chrysler, it's going to put the dealership back in the black. And, And they live lives of desperation. They live lives where everything is out of whack. Because what's driving them and what's ultimate in their lives is the goal, the number. And as a result, their marriages are terrible. Multiple of these guys that you hear about in this podcast, their marriages are over. They're on second, third marriages. Maybe they're divorced from the... Their marriages are awful. And I want to read you this one tragic section of of this transcript. This is about a guy named Joe, who's the manager of the, of the used car um, section of the dealership. And this reporter says of him, he's supposed to be at his son Mike's football game. It's a Sunday. It's a Sunday, and he's there, not dressed like he normally would be, but he's in like warm-up, a warm-up suit. He's there on a Sunday. He's supposed to be at his son Mike's football game. He hasn't been able to catch an away game all season, and he took this one Sunday off to do it. It was important to him. For so many years, he wasn't around enough for his kids. He was working all the time. Joe knows Mike will be looking for him in the stands right about now, and he's not going to be there because he's here at the car lot. And the reason is because he doesn't have a heart of wisdom. He doesn't have the ability to say, more than I fear missing this quota, I fear God. And more important than hitting this goal is me living for God. And more important than me selling these cars is me honoring my wife and taking care of my kids. And in order for me to be able to do these things, I'm going to trust God 
that somehow the requirements are going to be met, somehow the quotas are going to be met, somehow the goal is going to be hit, and I'm going to trust the Lord, and I'm not going into the dealership on Sunday on my day off. I'm going to my son's football game. I'm not staying at the dealership until 11 p.m. I'm going home so that I can have time with my wife and my, my kids. This is, this is the way that Christians must live if we gain a heart of wisdom. We don't live for that quota, that goal. We live for God. And everything else in our lives finds its appropriate place in relationship to Him. And because we have hearts of wisdom, because we fear God, there are these boundaries in our lives. There are these, these places where it's like the seashore. And the water can come this far and no farther. And it doesn't wash our homes away. Verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Lord, help me to realize that my kid is only going to be eight once. He, he may only have a couple of seasons of Little League Baseball. Help me to realize these things. Help me to live in light of these realities. Lord, give me the heart of wisdom that enables me to count up how many decades my parents have and to see what the likely end point will be so that I can live now like I will want to have lived once it's passed. We should number our days. They will pass the way that yesterday did. You think about how quickly yesterday went by. If we have however many years you've got left to live, I've got maybe 30 or 40, maybe you've got more, maybe you've got left. What you want to do is you want to get a heart of wisdom. And you want, to, you want to live in such a way that when you meet the one to whom you will give an account, he, he might say the words to you, well done, good and faithful servant. But I, I've got to insert something here. And the reason I've got to insert something is because we, what's true in verses 3 through 11 is true of all of us. We are all guilty before a holy God. And we are all in need of the Holy One to intercede between us and God and to make it so that the debt that we had accrued out of His wealth, He's able to pay it. That, that's what Jesus did for us. So that the, the holiness that we should have achieved in our lives, He's able to say, Account my righteousness to them. And so that all our guilt and all our sin, he's able to say, give that to me and let me suffer on their behalf. That's what Jesus does for us on the cross. And we go over this Sunday after Sunday in this place because we all need to reaffirm this in our minds. We needed him to liberate us from the powers of darkness. We needed him to pay our debt. We needed him to conquer Satan for us. And we needed him as our substitute in our place. We need every aspect of the atonement. And there are some things I haven't even mentioned. And we want those of you who, here who might not know Jesus, we want you to hear this. And we want you to know that we're sinners and you're a sinner. And the only way for you to live, the only hope you've got is for Jesus to do for you what Moses did for the Israelites. And if you'll turn from your sin and hope completely in him and trust in him, he will be your savior. And that brings us to verse 13, where Moses intercedes for the people. So Moses' first response to these awful realities in verses 3 through 11 is verse 12. Get wisdom. Number your days and get a heart of wisdom. Here's his second response. There's this string of requests 
in verses 13 through 17 that respond to the brevity of life. So in verse 13, he says, Turn, O Lord, return, O Lord. How long? Have pity or relent concerning your servants. Now, in in light of Psalm 89, where the people have been exiled from the land, you can read this to mean, turn back to us, O Lord, restore us to the land, and have pity on us by returning a king from David to the throne and resuming your purposes in 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 the nation of Israel. But the exile from the land symbolizes deeper things than just the people being driven out of their homes. The exile from the land in the Old Testament is a symbol of somebody leaving the realm of life and entering into the realm of death. So that the people of Israel in Ezekiel 37, they're they're the dry bones, dead in the valley. And for the people to be restored to the land is for them to be resurrected from the dead. And so I think that what Moses says next here in verse 14, satisfy us in the morning. That's morning of a new life. I think Moses is going beyond merely return the nation to the land. And he's thinking also in terms of the regeneration of all things, the renewal of creation, the resurrection of the dead, and the accomplishment and fulfillment of all his promises. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. This is the only way to live. This is the way the wise live. The wise live in such a way that they testify to everybody. The only thing that's going to satisfy your soul is Jesus. The only thing that's going to satisfy you is the steadfast love of the Lord. Maybe you saw this Jim Carrey quote that was, that was going around on Twitter and other places recently. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get it exactly right, but this is the gist of it. I wish everybody could have everything they've ever wanted and fulfill their dreams and be rich and famous so they would know it's not the point. It doesn't satisfy. What we need is for God to satisfy us in the morning with his steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. What we need is God himself. And I want to try my best to be really practical for you here. And what I'm about to say to you is, is as profound uh, as Denny's diet. Denny's got this great diet plan. You know what it goes? It goes like this. Eat the right amount of food, not too much, and exercise. That's Denny's diet. That's a good diet, isn't it? It's, it's so profound and, and, and deep, isn't it? Well, here's here's your plan for knowing God. This is so profound. Read the Bible, pray, and come to church. That's what you need to do. You need to read the Bible, you need to pray, and you need to walk with God with the people of God. That may include, you know, getting involved in a small group. It may include showing up for Sunday school. But if you'll read the Bible and pray and walk with God at Kenwood Baptist Church, this will become your reality. You'll become somebody who, I mean, the other day this neighborhood kid was over in our house 
and he had just gotten some new shoes, and he was telling, I mean, shoes that are more expensive than any pair of shoes we might ever buy our children, and he's telling them about all these other things that he's ordered online and things that he's going to be getting, and, and Jill says to him, you know that those things are never going to satisfy your soul, don't you? You know that your soul will only be satisfied if you know God, and that what you really need is Jesus. That's the truth. That's the truth. That's what's going to satisfy us. Not the next toy or a better car or a successful year at work. The only thing that's going to scratch the itch that we have is if the Lord answers the prayer in Psalm 90 verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And then look at the next prayer in verse 15. And this is where, again, I think Moses has to be addressing resurrection life. He has to be addressing another lifespan. Verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. How many days has the Lord afflicted us? Uh, Look back at at, uh, verse 10, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. It was affliction the whole way. Make us glad for as many... This has to be a prayer for resurrection life. Raise us up and give us another lifespan and make us glad for that amount of time and for as many years as we have seen evil. And and here's the great thing about Christianity. The Lord's going to answer this prayer. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. And this must be either true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not, not be worth bothering about if I were going to live 70 years, but which I had better bother about very seriously if I am going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse. So gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely correct and a technical term for what it would be. And immortality makes this other difference, which, by the way, has a connection with other differences between... uh, He goes on to talk about some other things. I should have stopped reading already. Sorry about that. (laughs) The point is... The point is, we're going to live forever. God is going to raise us from the dead. And that makes it so that our lives here and now matter. It makes makes it so that the disciplines that we cultivate in our lives, the character traits that we try to, to cause to grow, the ways that we try to sow to the Holy Spirit so that we give rise to the fruits of the Holy Spirit, this is going to matter forever. It also makes it so that those Those secret sins need to be exposed by the light of of God's presence because we don't want those things to mark us forever. Make us glad for as many years as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen, seen evil. Then verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants. Work there is singular. And I think what Moses is saying is, Bring it all to pass, Lord. 
Bring it all to pass. Make it so that the seed of the woman has bruised the head of the serpent. Make it so that the blessing of Abraham has gone to all the families of the earth. Make it so that the king from David's line is on the throne, reigning forever, with a rule that's marked by justice and righteousness. Make it so that we live in the land, as that passage that Todd read earlier concluded, where righteousness dwells. Make it so that the heavens and earth are new. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. This is nothing short of the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Everything is brought to pass. And then this final prayer in verse 17, in many ways corresponds to verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2, Lord, you're eternal. Now verse 17, Moses is saying, Lord, make our work have lasting significance. And this is responding to the way that death, death causes everything that we do at times to feel futile and vain and brief because death brings an end to every project. Retirement renders careers and policies and leadership styles irrelevant. I remember one of my professors speaking of of one of his uh, professors that he had studied under. He said when he was... When he was in his office, when he was teaching, he was God on campus. Everybody deferred to him. Everybody talked about him. Everybody discussed his views. And then he said, that man retired, and he was instantly forgotten. Nobody cared what he thought anymore. He was never going to write another book or another journal article. His career was irrelevant. And Moses is responding to that here. Moses says in Psalm 90, verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This, this makes me think of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That long chapter about the resurrection of the body. You know what Paul says at the end of that long chapter of the res- on the resurrection? The whole chapter is concerned with the resurrection. And then Paul says this at the very end. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain because of the resurrection. It's the resurrection that makes your work have lasting value. And what Moses is praying here in Psalm 90:17 is, Lord, cause your favor and your grace to so rest upon us that somehow in the renewal of all things, in the resurrection of the dead, the things that we've done in this life will still matter in the next. I don't know how that's going to work. I don't know the specifics of that. But if we believe the Bible, we trust. We trust the Lord that it is so. I want to conclude with two, two considerations about how to apply a text like Psalm 90. It, and, and this is really just developing verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So I'm just sort of filling in the details of what a heart of wisdom looks like with these final two applications. One is from the book of Ecclesiastes. And there's two things I want to I say about that book. One is that over and over again in, in Ecclesiastes, you hear this refrain, that the way you respond to the, the futility and the vanity of life, he says, there's nothing better for man to do than to eat and drink and enjoy his work. 
This is God's gift to you. That's, what you. that's how you should respond. You should respond, my life is a gift, so I want to eat my food, and I want to I drink to the glory of God, and I want to enjoy the work that God has given me to do. And then the concluding statements of the verse, fear God and keep his commandments. That, 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 oh, the, the concluding statements of the book, you know what I'm trying to say. And then the other thing that I want to, I want to bring your attention to is a statement that Peter makes in 1 Peter chapter 4, where he says, he says that what we want to do, 1 Peter 4, 2, is live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for that, but for the will of God. For the time, of pa- the time that is past suffices, and you've only got so much left. Let's pray. Father, you are ours to enjoy by your grace through Christ, and we are yours to command. And Lord, our prayer is that you would give us hearts that by your grace and by faith in Christ and by repentance from sin are done with living for the things of the world and committed to living for your will. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to fear you, to live in wisdom, and to eat and drink and enjoy our work, receiving your gift from you. Lord, we love you. We pray that you'd help us to be ready when the time comes. We pray, Lord, that you'd be honored by the way we live. And we join with those across the ages who have prayed. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Amen.